so that kind of leads me to the to the yeah, leadership. I'd really like for people to understand that you have you. I think that's the real rubber meets the road in that. Um, you know, a lot of people I interview like have no damning intellectually, but but people who have actually figured out how to practice this stuff, you know, it, it, at scale in organizations and have tales, you know, tales to tell, if you will. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so one of the uh, implications of Deming's te- teachings on leadership is the realization of the performance of the whole system. Now, the performance of the whole system is never the sum of the performance of the parts, individuals, in this case, people, right, taken separately. So it's never the sum of the performance of the parts taken separately, but it's the product of their interactions. Deming, you know, from his manufacturing days, attributed 94% of all the performance comes from interactions. And in software, it's actually much higher, higher, uh, right? And so that's why you should, if you want to improve the performance of your organization as a leader, don't focus on the people, but focus on the on interactions, which is basically your processes and policies and systems, starting from how do you prioritize, how do you collaborate, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And so um, that's the key takeaway message is never blame the people and fix the system. Never blame the culture. Culture is an emergent property of the right, system. Right. You got to go work with the system, fix the system, and then watch culture change happen magically after that. Again, connecting the dots to management by results and management by means, that's what leaders like Bezos did amazingly. They were able to translate those teachings into things that uh, people can understand. What Bezos said was, don't focus on your output variables. Instead, focus on your input variables. What is he telling there is, don't manage by um, results, manage by your means. Focus on what you can control, what you're working on. Don't worry about that. That'll happen automatically. Don't worry about profits. Don't worry about revenue. All of that will happen, but just you focus on your means. And so Deming's impact is is extremely um, profound, even just when it comes to overall commerce and and, and stuff like that. And Bezos got that. Uh, he, he, He articulated that, look, in the long term, customer priorities and shareholder priorities actually align. Even though shareholders want quarterly results right, and improvements right, right. and growth, in the short term they, they are conflicted, but in the long term they're actually aligned. And so when you take a systems thinking approach, what you should focus on is quality. When you focus on quality, that then in turn improves uh, productivity, decreases cost, that in turn would result in greater market share and creating more jobs. And then it, that's a virtuous cycle that goes on and on. Uh, that system thinking, how these different things interact with each other and influence with each other, how do you project that to the long term and see what do you focus on? What are the input variables you should focus on? And so that's that that's uh, that's the key important lesson for, for leaders. Uh, as Russell Akoff says, you can have your cake and eat it too, mm-hmm. just not at the same time. You need to make that upfront commitment and investment into things like quality and security. Well, that's the Paul O'Neill story, right? We had talked about that, right? Which is another one. The Paul O'Neill was the, um, the Cola, right? The, the Cola story, which was, you know, he, he took over this organization. And the first thing he said is, you know, we're going to focus on safety. Yes. Like, no, no, you have to focus on quarterly earnings and money. And he's like, no. And, and Wall Street hammered him. But then, 
you know, his model that he put in place, which was this like totally revolutionizing the system where I think it was um, you had to basically any sort of injury had to be translated back to him within 24 hours. And it wasn't a blameful. It was, mm-hmm. as he said, it was it was a way to, to understand their pockets of ignorance. But ultimately, True. the system was improved by the numbers over five years were you know outstanding. Yeah, uh, you know, I think condemning it was- it's the quality, right? Like it's like, let's just get the quality thing right at a systems level leadership understand and like all those other things you're worrying about they'll fall in place absolutely um i think the alcoa uh transformation led by paul o'neill is absolutely the best one of the best case studies of application of systems thinking where he got the entire company focused on safety rather than profits and and results and whatnot even though that actually happened. The board got it. The, the board of the company understood what he was doing there and they were supportive of it. But, uh, but Wall Street didn't understand it initially, but then obviously the results speak for themselves. That's an amazing case study that I would definitely encourage viewers to look into. Yeah. Um, I know yeah. you wanted to kind of deep dive into epistemology as well. Uh, do you think we can pivot there? Yeah, wherever you want to go. You're, you're, you're in charge, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I listened to the the, the, the latest po- podcast you had uh, with, with Jay. It was just fantastic. Uh, I'd like to just give you different perspectives on that to see um, how, how we can connect the dots. And so um, deep diving on epistemology, we all have knowledge, but how do you know what you know is true? Um, and you talked about how Deming got this from C.I. Lewis, so I don't want to kind of rehash that story. You elegantly articulated that in previous podcasts and, and, and even today. But I want to go back to this, uh, what is knowledge and, and the earlier philosophies around that, uh, which a lot of people still believe in, is the justified true belief uh, version of knowledge. And... Um, Anyone who calls himself a Bayesian uh, is a justified true believer. Uh, And the modern uh, incantation of this Bayesianism uh, goes something like this, right? You have a theory, you collect more evidence, and you become more and more confident that your theory is correct. (laughs) That's the way uh, most of the folks interpret justified uh, true belief. Like once you've justified something as true, well, it is true. Mm -hmm. If it is true, then that means that there's nothing false about it. Therefore, it cannot be refuted. Right. I strongly feel that that's, that's a very religious uh, notion. And so I went into this rabbit hole of epistemology and really deep dive and like kind of poured myself into how do we create knowledge in the first place? Is it induction? Clearly, induction is, is not correct. Uh, I, I think Nassim Nicholas Taleb uh, kind of popularized it with this black swan uh, blah, blah, theory, right? And so where I really found um, explanation was in Karl Popper's uh, philosophy of fallibilism. Uh, that was the one that made the most sense to me. And David Deutsch, uh, who's an Oxford physicist, uh, is, is popularizing that today. And he's really expanded and did amazing work on that. I would recommend his books uh, for your viewers on this. And so let's deep dive into what Popper said about knowledge creation. And uh, I'll try to connect that with Deutschian explanation so that it makes sense for, for your viewers. So what Popper said is, 
knowledge is not created by induction and deduction and things of that nature. It's actually created by this virtuous cycle of conjectures and refutation. Uh, and David Deutsch calls it as conjecture and criticism. And there's only two types of knowledge in the universe. First is genetic knowledge. Genes are knowledge. It is just encoded knowledge about how do you survive in an environment? That's all genes are. And how do genes propagate? How, do, how does genes evolve is through this cycle of variation and selection. Any, that's how any complex system evolves and grows, right? Variation in this case is all of those random mutations that happen within, within genes. And the selection is the natural selection that Darwin explained to us. Um, and so the environment then picks the winners and the losers. A simple example is, imagine one of the brown bears that either you know, migrated to the poles or when the ice age came or whatever, one of those bears at some millions of years ago got a mutation that changed its hair color to white. And now that's just a random mutation, but the environment, from the environment perspective, it gave it amazing advantage. Now it can hide it him, itself from its praise uh, and it can feast on its, uh, sorry, it can feast on its praise uh, and also its predators cannot see it well because it's white. Now, if you give it a, a few million years, the competitive edge is so much better than the other bears that now it's the only, like the polar bears are the only ones living in the poles. And now uh, similarly, uh, what Popper explained is even memes, uh, which is basically human knowledge, uh, so genes and memes, okay. also go through this uh, cycle of conjecture and criticism. And so when, when you say conjecture, they're just guesses, but they're not just guesses. So what David Deutsch calls them is, we need good explanations. And what is a good explanation? A good explanation has to be testable, it has to be falsifiable, and it has to make hard, uh, it has to, it has, its explanations have to be hard to vary, and it has to make narrow and risky predictions. Let me explain, let me break that down again. It has to be testable, I think we all get that. It has to be falsifiable, and the explanations have to be hard to vary, and it has to make narrow and risky predictions. A simple example is, Let's say someone says, if you eat grass, it will cure common cold. Now they'll say, you gotta eat one kg of grass to cure common cold. Um, do you have to even go and run an experiment about it? No, but still, let's say, let's say you do it. Then the cure, obviously it's not gonna cure the common cold. Then they'll say, oh no, you ate this species of grass over that species of grass. Instead of one kilo, you must eat 1.1 kilos. So, the, the, the explanations have to be hard to vary. A good example of that was when Einstein proposed his theory of uh, general theory of relativity. Uh, obviously, there was a problem that 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 was there in front of us, right? There has to be a, a conflict or a problem. That's what David Deutsch calls it. The problem there was that Newton's theory of gravity could not explain the orbit of Mercury. So there was there was a, a minor difference. And so what uh, Einstein said was, uh, if you apply my theory, then it will elegantly explain the path that Mercury takes. 
And we had to wait for several years before the actual experiment could be done over an eclipse, during an eclipse, so that the sun gets. So that's when it, it got proved. And it was very narrow and risky prediction. And it was hard to vary. If that experiment failed, Einstein goes out the door. <laughs> and so good explanations have to be testable and falsifiable. Just making predictions alone is not important, right? Any any um, uh, person that's shouting um, um, in the middle of the street that the world is coming to an end uh, on, on next Friday has a prediction, <laughs> but they don't have good explanations. And so science is not just about prediction, but it's all about chasing good explanations. And now, how does what are the implications on leadership and learning organization uh, on that? So let's apply this. And so. Now that we understand that all knowledge is conjectural and is subject to improvement, that's the whole philosophy of fallibilism that is you can never um, get to what reality is. We get to more and more better accurate explanations of reality. Right, right. And so what's more important is protecting the means of error correction and improvement is much more important than any particular piece of knowledge. Let me repeat that again. Given that all knowledge is conjectural and subject to improvement, protecting the means of error correction and improvement is much more important than any particular piece of knowledge. Now, if you view this through the lens of the PDSA cycle, right. experimentation, learning, learning organization, uh, all of that makes sense. Um, so... You know, one thing that I want to push back a little bit on the pragmatism aspects is that, like, okay, you're in this search for knowledge, but where do you stop? Uh, is there a ceiling, or in this case, is, is, is where, like, where do you uh, put the uh, blockers? A sort of economic value. This is what me and Jay were talking about. There's, there's a point yeah. of which, like the pendulum story, right? The yep. Pierce's pendulum. There was a point of which, yeah, I can make a better pendulum, but is it? Does it solve my problem to? Uh, a high level probability right now yeah and how expensive would it be to to create the next great absolutely event? yeah philosophically it, it makes a lot of sense but in in reality what happens is a lot of the leaders the way they interpret pragmatism uh, i call it the dark side of pragmatism is the way they interpret it is be practical give me quick answers right. yeah, yeah i want to solve this now uh, you're talking about woo-woo stuff like systems thinking i don't get it like yeah, yeah you know yeah. they all want quick answers and, and no wonder management consultants are dime a dozen. What we need are not consultants. We need educators like Russell Akoff, uh, who can come and ask the right questions and teach us by asking the right questions so that leaders can self-reflect. Uh, that's one attribute that leaders should have is they should deeply self-reflect. How do you know what is true? Right. Uh, let me connect the dots with Steve Jobs. Actually, Johnny Ive wrote an amazing article uh, on the 10th anniversary, death anniversary of, of Steve Jobs. And we can link the article in, in show notes uh, for the podcast. And there, there's this quote that is just um, uh, in my mind, which is, Steve was preoccupied with the nature and quality of his own thinking. Uh, metacognition is an important trait of any leader. That's where the, you know, the epistemology connection happens. And the way you set up your organization uh, how do you encourage experimentation? How do you encourage failures and so on and so forth? Yeah, I know um, two things there. One is, um, you know, Steven Spear, you know, he, you know, he did uh, his dissertation on, uh, you know, 
on uh, you know the, the the I think the HBR article that eventually came out, but it was his PhD, which was you know the DNA of the Toyota production system. And is one of my favorite quotes was Toyota was a community of scientists continually yes. experimenting. Yeah, that you know we didn't he didn't describe them as people who make great cars. He didn't talk about and iron cords. He did. I mean, he did at a certain point, but but mm-hmm. his single sort of description was is that. And then the other thing is is we've talked about this before. I've stumbled into some of the Sublon to some of the Jeeves. Oh, Duran. Oh, it was Duran. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let, yeah. let me, I think we, we can, we can dive there. Um, now that we've talked about epistemology, like how is it a linchpin for some of the stuff that we're doing here, right? In, in an organizational setting, DevOps, DevSecOps, in general human performance. Um, it, you know, epistemology should be at the core of all of this. Now you talked about Toyota. And so that's where I want to start. Alan Ward, um, who is well known in lean circles, uh, uh, you know, it's a great, he's a great mind that that we lost, unfortunately, in an accident. He said, project failures are knowledge failures. We didn't know how to solve that problem. He didn't know how to ship that product, whatever, right? And so uh, it all comes back to knowledge. (laughs) If something is not prohibited by the laws of nature, then it must be possible. What's preventing us from making those physical transformation is just lack of knowledge. And so in an organizational setting, all we're doing is building knowledge iteratively. What is code? After all, it's encoded knowledge. Uh, And and, uh, while a lot of software development uh, constructs and concepts came from manufacturing, in software, all we do is design and prototyping, right? It's all design and design is inherently an iterative process. And so uh, when someone asked the Toyota chief engineer, what makes a good car? After a deep thought, he replied, a lot of conflicts, a lot of conflicts. And so as a leader, um, what that means to you is how do you set up that virtuous cycle of conjecture and criticism that goes on in the organization that will result in open-ended knowledge creation? How do you set up an organization which is a complex system where you can sustain and grow this virtuous cycle of conjecture and criticism? What what that means is all work has to be seen as an experiment. No failures, no successes. There is no real failed experiment because even a failed experiment technically gives you some learnings. Right. And so uh, make bold guesses about the future and iteratively error correct. Having that error correction mechanism is super important. And if you want innovation at your company, then you need to truly enable experimentation. And I don't mean experimentation as in A-B testing. Uh, It's the ability to quickly test out new ideas, new product ideas and features and allowing your teams to just fail. That's right. uh, and and Google and Amazon have amazing failures that they talk about. Right. Uh, Google has a site that that's dedicated to it, where you can go and list all the failed Google products. Amazon had this amazing failure with the Fire Phone, and and who, well, even, and they and they yeah. took the team to convert it to Alexa, which is now successful. Yeah, even um, you know they they talk about you talking about the sort of the what makes great car the conflict, but there's a there's a great story of. Um, Somebody interviewing um, one of the Kentucky plants, Toyota Kentucky plants, and they say, you know, how do you produce 20, you know, 200 cars a day? That's amazing. And, you know, and, and the sort of plant manager who's in charge says, 
and I'm paraphrasing, but it's easy. We pull the andon cord 5,000 times a day, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and when you talk about Google, um, the, um, I, I remember uh, seeing the presentation you know, many years ago and even sort of updated about how many sort of tests, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the, 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 you know, like billions of tests a day are run yeah. on their pipelines, right? Like in, an insane amount of, and I, I think that's like the Kentucky plant. That's this sort of andon cord being pulled, um, you know, in, in a, as a massive software delivery model, you know? Absolutely. Speaking about andon cards, uh, let me take a quick detour there. Sure. Actually, Bezos implemented andon card um, in Amazon. Uh, not many know this, but customer service uh, representatives, like when you call Amazon, like yeah. those folks are actually empowered with the click of a button, they can delist any product that's on Amazon if they see some quality issues. Uh, maybe it's incorrect packaging that's de- leading to you know damaged goods when ship- things get delivered and when they yeah. kind of see the pattern and, and uh, they have their tooling and the information in front of their hands and they can quickly stop that. Now that's empowerment. That's that's yeah. real application of systems thinking. And so what the, the, the key message that I want to leave here is, for the leaders is like celebrating failures, like a lot of us talk about it. it it's more like a platitude. But right. if you truly understand this epistemology that it's not just you're going to tolerate failure, you should actively encourage it. You should celebrate it because right, yeah. knowledge building is essentially an error correcting process. That's right. Make mistakes and learn from it. So that, 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 that so uh, that's why science ever since the enlightenment era, like humans have kind of been in a state of stasis for mil- millennia. And then when, why science gave us so much progress, science is the engine of progress. Why? Because it has that error correction mechanism. Right. right. Any school kid, can come up with a good explanation tomorrow that refutes Einstein's theories and the kid can walk away with the Nobel Prize. <laughs> and that's the core of like uh, psychological safety too, right? The idea that an organization, if you've only been there one day, you know, that there was a great um, early days of DevOps, you know, uh, Facebook, you know, right from the get-go was very transparent about everything. In early days, mm-hmm. Google and Amazon wouldn't say anything about what, how they did things, right? But Facebook shows up in a lot of the sort of technical conferences and and they just like tell you, ask, answer any question you ask. But I remember at one point it was a large crowd and, and they were talking about how the developers deploy to production on the first day, right? Which is sort of like everybody sort of who's bantering like we're DevOps at scale, mm-hmm. you know, had that story. And somebody from sort of a legacy mindset, large sort of bank, you know, stood up and said, you know, what if they break the system? And he, the the speaker's immediate reaction wasn't like, huh, let me think about it. His immediate reaction is like, if they can break the system on the first day, we're going to give them a bonus or we're going to celebrate that. Because yeah. we got, you know, I don't know how many developers at the time. And this person came in day one and figured out how to break it. That's yeah. awesome. An award, yeah. you know, let's celebrate that, you know. And that's a hard, that's a hard um, message to get across in large sort of legacy-ish type institutions. Correct. Um, to that point, blameless postmortems have become a thing. It's it's a buzzword now. A lot of companies yeah. actually try to implement it. But when you go read up the report, the root cause would be human error. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. It can't yeah. be a blameless postmortem if, if, you, if your root cause is human error. And number two, why limit uh, blameless to just postmortems? 
systems thinking shows us that you should that's always right. focus right. on the system that's and right. not that's people. Right. Right. And so yeah. blameless is not just for postmortems, it's for everything. Yeah, well, I don't just failures. use them on incidents. Why can't we just use it for all? Yeah, no, I, I and, and I think there there is some maturity there is the sort of retrospective mindset is is sort of opened up more. And then, you know, I think there's a fair amount of information now about, you know, um, you know, sort of blaming or the human errors like being sort of a negative um you know, Sidney Decker, who I've befriended over the years, um, for a while there, you know, we'd trade back and forth, you know, pilot error stories, we'd call about, you know, like mm-hmm. any kind of story where the answer of the finding was it was pilot, you know, metaphorically the pilot error, right? Like, yep. it's just the anti-systems thinking. Um, this is all great. Is there a little bit of time to talk about, like, security and in, in this, like, what, you know, I think that that's a really, I, I you know, I think some organizations, I, I mean, there are a lot of people doing Demingism stuff and don't know it's Deming, right? There's a lot of people who aren't, and that's part of the problem we talk about, right? But, but there's a lot of people, you know, you can say that Agile and DevOps and Lean and all these things are generally not just Deming, it, it's Duran, it's Hackoff, it's, you know, all, all the, it's Senge, it's all the sort of mm-hmm. collective that have, have, that have like taught us these lessons over the years. Um, but the one thing I don't see as much is people like you who are really in tune with like it goes back to Deming. Once you understand that, then you can understand all these things better, and then applying that to security. To me, that's a, an interesting frontier. Absolutely, I'd love to talk about uh, security, but first, I think we should talk about software development. Set the stage for the for the listeners. Like talk about DevOps and stuff like, like application of systems thinking there, and then we can kind of deep dive into the implications of security. And so if I want to start there, I would say like all modern ways of uh, working like DevOps or SAFE, which is scaled agile framework, like all of them talk about systems thinking. DevOps calls it the first way. Uh, SAFE, uh, the number, the second principle is apply systems thinking, but many organizations don't. Um, why? Um, you know, my pet peeve, John, is like when it comes to DevOps, I wish people didn't refer to it as left to right, but instead something more to the effect of think of the whole. Um, So um, I think a lot of the management books, um, like why, if you you want to answer the question, why systems thinking is not so prevalent in organizations, is it all goes back to our education system. And some of it uh, can be attributed to management books. Uh, A lot of the management books um, give you data and information. They don't give you knowledge. And more importantly, they don't give you understanding. Uh, Let let me kind of, that's what we need. And and the problem really starts at school. Kids are naturally good systems thinkers. Peter Senge has has this uh, video that that he shares in one of his talks where he they teach school kids systems thinking and they get it and they like totally get it. And they discuss among themselves how mean words causes hurt feelings and that in turn causes more mean words and hurt feelings and how that vicious cycle develops and that they need to cut it off so that they can go back to normal and 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 be happy um so that's the problem like that analytical reductionist thinking from schooling like mm-hmm. both epistemology and systems thinking are not taught at schools that's mm-hmm. where the fundamental problem starts and as Peter Singer says, reality is just made up of circles and all we see is straight lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm paraphrasing him, but th- th- that's the reality. And look at all of other systems. 
healthcare system, um, uh, schools, universities, governments, and more importantly, corporations. What do we do? We tell them, divide them into parts. Sales, marketing, finance, engineering, product, what have you. And we all know that the performance of the system uh, comes from the interactions, not from the parts. And so you cannot improve the performance of a system by improving a part in isolation. And so we need to truly look at the interactions, think of the whole. Uh, and as Asar Rakoff put it, sorry, Russell Rakoff put it, the higher the, the rank uh, of managers, rather, let me rephrase that, the lower the rank of the managers, they know more and more about less and less things. The higher the rank of the managers, they know less and less about more and more things. Right. And so if you want good decision-making to happen in your company, then you, you're better off pushing authority to where the information is. You got to push authority, authority to where information is rather than asking information to be pushed to authority, where That's the right. senior leaders lack most of the context of the real problems on the ground. And Jobs got it from Joe Duran. And he goes on and on for like 20 minutes in that video uh, praising Joe Duran. I haven't seen Steve Jobs praise anyone like that for, for such a long time. Uh, and, the, and the sad part of it is Walter Isaacson, who wrote the biography of Steve Jobs, amazing book, but he totally missed Joe Duran. And, and I take issue with that because Steve Jobs was completely transformed at Next. And all of his uh, reputation about being that arrogant manager and all of that stuff was his was only during his first stint at Apple. Right. And then Steve was completely transformed at Next. And uh, he talks about, you know, pushing decisions down and like his management team doing two, do two things. One is first ask the question, is this a decision we have to make? And if it is, then how they actually align and, and persuade each other rather than uh, persevering over each other. Uh, and so Jobs was an amazing systems thinker. And so was uh, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos uh, got it from Jeff Wilkie, who came from MIT. Yeah. And uh, MIT is where system dynamics was invented uh, by Jay Forrester. Uh, and so Jeff Wilkie was kind of uh, his tutor. And Bezos has publicly acknowledged that uh, as well. And so um, there are some really good systems thinkers like Jason Fried. Uh, who's the CEO of Basecamp, is another systems thinker. Uh, his books are good. Again, the challenge is all of the books give us only data and information, right. very little knowledge and wisdom. And that's why systems thinking is not very prevalent among leaders. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's um, you know, when I first started hearing about you know, sort of complex systems and systems thinking, you know, you, unless you're sort of a real student, and, and that's not a criticism of anybody, but, but somebody who just like sort of gets excited about like hearing things that sort of feel really, you know, like not good when you first hear them, like, oh, wait, this challenges everything, I think. But even then, I, I struggle to get the bigger, you know, good news is I've got really smart friends and I, I get to ask a lot of questions, but, but really trying to put together, um, it took a real long time before I really understood the relationship between complex systems, this sounds like this should be simple, and systems thinking. Yeah. But that didn't come to me on, on day one. And, you know, and, and I, you know, I aggressively seek out these, this kind of knowledge. So it's harder for, you know, people who are in roles that basically constantly do the same thing over and over and over. 
And like you said, you have to walk in and say, I really need you to understand this thing called system thinking, like, get out of my office, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, One of the good things about pushing decisions down is that the top management, the leadership actually has more time. And Resolokov says this time and again, which is higher the rank um, of managers, the less they perceive a need for a continuing education but greater is the need for it. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing him. Mm-hmm. Higher the rank of the manager, greater is the need for higher continuing education, mm-hmm. but they, they, they don't perceive, they perceive it. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, right. that's the problem. Well, you know, so, Decker, you know, Gene asked Decker one time, we did this, this uh, forum with, uh, with Decker, Sidney Decker, Richard Cook, and, uh, and, and Steven Spear. And, and Gene had asked at one point like to Decker, like, um, you know, how would you, um, you know, how would you, you know, well, how would you describe resilience engineering or safety? And he said, he really said two things. And at one point he said, well, you know, resilience engineer or sort of uh, safety uh, is um, being able to tell the boss bad news. But then at, at, at some point in a conversation, he says, you know, another thing that people don't realize is, you know, it's not just a one way street. The, the boss has to be able to say, y'all, I don't know. And that that's a very yeah. powerful, you know, like to be able to stand in front of all your employees and say, you know what, I haven't figured this out. Yeah, we're going to have to figure this out. You 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 rarely see that kind of leader. Yeah, but but that's that's what's needed. To your point, like instead of thinking, you know, I can't take a course on leadership, boy. If anybody heard that I was taking a course on leadership, they'd question why am I in a leadership role? You know. Yeah, um, and that that applies to multiple perspectives. Like the way Amazon systematized that was disagree and commit. That's not between teams. That's mostly for leaders. Uh, like uh, when the team came to Jeff Bezos about uh, funding some movie as part of Amazon video, uh, Bezos was not convinced, but he said, look, you, I trust the team here. You've done your analysis. I disagree, but I commit. And he funded that project. And that went on to be uh, a success, like won awards and stuff like that. And so right. leaders have to have to push that uh, decision-making down for sure. Yeah, no, that's great. Awesome. Did you want to touch so, on security a little bit? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, so um, where do I start? <laughs> the World Economic Forum, uh, I think it was last year, or early this year, they said uh, they actually put cybersecurity as one of the top five risks uh, faced by humanity uh, right there along with climate change and pandemic. And the common thing there is all of them need a systems thinking-based approach to solve holistically. And so when you apply Deming's principles, uh, especially we talked about managing by means, uh, that is something you can apply to security as well. Uh, And one of the lessons from safety management is we should see safety in terms of resilience and not uh, as absence of something like accidents or missed days, Mm -hmm. et cetera, but rather as the presence of something. And so I can connect the dots there to see like, output variables and input variables. And so this is what I tell my team is don't focus on the output variables, focus on the input variables. Let me give you an example from product security. Um, When when you run uh, multiple pen tests uh, on an application and they all come back with zero findings of cross-site scripting or CSRF or SQL inject or what have you, you can run automated code scans of that. But does that truly give you any assurances 
that there is no such vulnerability uh, or it won't be introduced in the future? Absolutely not. What's going to give you those assurances are your input variables. If you don't have a framework that automatically does context-aware output encoding, you have zero guarantees that your application is not going to have cross-site scripting. If your framework doesn't have automated token generation and validation of CSRF, for example, then you cannot have any guarantees on that your app is not going to be vulnerable from CSRF. And so we're so focused on scanning and finding vulnerabilities and tr don't try to reduce that. Instead, focus on your input variables and, and uh, make them better. Um, the other aspect of systems thinking is uh, we, we talked about earlier, which is you can't improve a part in isolation. Uh, you can't improve quality of a product without improving the underlying processes with which you are manufacturing the product. Security is no different, right? Problems are just abstractions. So let me dive into the details of vulnerability management. Let's say vulnerability management is, is very bad at, at a company. Um, that's just an attraction from the security team's perspective. But what's really going on is potentially asset management is broken, config management is broken, OS image management is broken, drift management is broken, mm -hmm. automation is non-existent or broken. And all of those things manifest itself as, hey, vulnerability management is broken. Right. And so instead of scanning and, and telling your engineering teams to go patch these vulnerabilities, Focus on building those basics, secure building blocks. Get your asset management in order. Get your config management in order. Now, how do we know this works? The, the evidence is right in front of our eyes. Look at all the cloud providers. How did they get so good at security? They got their basics right. Solid asset management, solid config management. It's so much of automation that you only have to interact with APIs and not through manual. Yeah, and that's the key of the platform story, right? Which is mm -hmm. that, you know, that Google understood this, you know, 15 years ago when you know, we see it as Kubernetes today, but it, it's the abstraction. Right? Yeah. Because that, that's the other problem I have. I think too many organizations um, try to say, well, you know, the way we're going to solve this is we're going to train our developers to be experts <laughs> on security. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't think that's the right answer, right? Like, they don't like it. They didn't, like, they would have probably picked that job <laughs> if, you know, and you're just, like, you know, pulling them away from what you really want them to do is write really good code. So so you have to build those abstractions um, that, that like, where they can do what they have to do, and then they're yeah. protected. And, you know, I think that today, you know, looking at the platform and, and, and probably another problem, Andrew, my Andrew cliche for my boss, it, mm -hmm. we, you know, he says that we, you know, we sort of overemphasize the idea of a platform as a service. It's a platform as an interface, right? Absolutely. Which is that, 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 that allows us to create the true abstraction between all the stuff that happens on the right scale, infrastructure, storage, security, and then what a developer needs to do, which is really Absolutely. understand the interfaces. Yeah, even Bezos got this correctly right from the get-go. That's right. Yeah. Uh, he, he said that no coordination is better than better coordination. As the company goes through hyper-growth phase, uh, if teams within the company are interacting through manual coordination, then 
you're not going to be able to that's scale right. and thrive uh, and keep up with the rate of innovation. That's why he said, look, all the teams have to interact only through APIs. Yeah, no, it's it's insane that, and that, that a leader, a guy who was basically some guy who figured out how to create an electronic bookstore with no experience other than, you know, sort of financial, but that's probably good enough, right? But it they literally is that innovative to be able to say, decide the organization needs to communicate via APIs is their sort of core structure. That's Absolutely. Insane, right? uh, yeah. yeah. And you can directly connect the dots to the birth of AWS. They got yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. better at their, uh, they got a brand new uh, uh, product idea. And uh, now that's like multi-billion dollar company. And, and so that's the power of systems thinking. If you really get the basics of it, uh, it's a gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Um, so, you know, pivoting back to uh, security, um, I'll probably uh, leave uh, the audience with this message that, that poor security is not a problem. It's merely a symptom of the underlying engineering yeah. practices. And so your success lies in collaboration right. uh, with your developer experience teams, IT teams, site engineering, and so on and so forth to create these win-win scenarios so that you can collaborate. And the way I say this to my teams is be the rising tide that lifts all boats. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and uh, securing the company and um, making the company uh, move fast are basically two sides of the same coin. Uh, you cannot just take the one side. And when you apply systems thinking, as Rasulakov put it, you can have your cake and eat it too, yeah, just yeah, not yeah. at the same time. The that, That's the thing, you know, as I got sort of found my way into DevSecOps and and you know the earliest discoveries that I would find is these, you know, the set not only just the separation, the same kind of dev and op separation from security, mm-hmm. uh, but you'd ask, you know, I do sort of value stream mapping and the risk people, you know, would talk about sort of problems that they catch way downstream and and like and I'd say, well, wouldn't it make sense for you all to sort of be involved in design and requirements and like, Oh no, no, they won't let us come there. You know, they said they were slow. They don't. So you, you find this sort of these histories of, you know, almost like, you know, sort of, it, it became sort of a, you know, a justified belief, right. In that, um, you know, that like, Oh no, no, you just can't have risk at, at a design requirements. So I'm like, well, that's totally antithetical to systems thinking, right. Yeah. Like you absolutely want risk in design requirements so you can have a holistic discussion about all the parts as they get put into the system. Yeah, absolutely. The the way I articulate that to my team is, uh, folks, you got to go and cook in their kitchen right from the get-go. That's right. right, So so that if they they do a design and they come back to you for a review, then you're going to find fault. (laughs) There's going to be a back and forth. And so our key aspect there is to uh, kill interactions and interdependencies. You got to go cook in their kitchen, but the the nuance there is that in software, all we do is design, which means they're not really cooking in the kitchen. They are figuring out the recipe. That's right. That's figuring right. out a new recipe is always iterative process. You got to have a seat at that table, yeah. uh, and that's the, yeah. You have to create the environment for that table, right? Which you know we have all these sort of. Um, ways that we've sort of um sort of evolved in an organization that you know security is like almost sort of separated at the the you know the the at the, the ceo level really you have a cso and you have cio right yes. As, it all goes back to that reductionist thinking of let's divide everything into parts right try to understand each of those parts and then somehow you're going to make sense of the whole 
uh, that's never going to happen. Well, uh, even worse, right? It's like we don't get it. So I guess the way to do it is to create another officer. <laughs> you know, maybe that would be a better way because we don't really understand it instead of trying to sit down. Like you said, a CIO should be like, no, I got this, y'all. And again, I'm simplifying it, but like, I'll figure this out. I'm the CIO. Let me figure out what we need to do for, you know, like, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Um, All right, John, it was so much fun chatting. Yeah, this is great. We'll do it again. And, um, you know, this is good. I, I think uh, people love the Jabe one. You know, they're like philosophy. They're talking about philosophy and DevOps. This is awesome. So I, I suspect we really got people sort of really excited when they listen to this one as well. So. Yeah, if people can go geek out on Popper's philosophy. Yeah, you are. yeah no, totally. And, yeah, the more we sort of understand why we understand or why where, where all this stuff comes from, <laughs> the better chance we have at sort of being able to make use of it, right? Yeah. All right, my friend, this is awesome. Great. Um, I'll, I'll just uh, close by saying this. Thank you so much for, for having me on. Uh, folks can actually find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is L.A. Raghavan. And uh, I'm, I've started to publish uh, some articles about systems thinking, cybernetics, and leadership, um, what leadership really means in the 21st century on LinkedIn. And uh, thank you for uh, sharing, uh, resharing my first article on LinkedIn, John. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I know it's great, and uh, and uh, we'll put a, we'll put as much as we can in the show notes so people can find you. So thank you, my friend. So awesome, thanks, John. Mm-hmm.